0: For this Mother's Day, we are recapping 10 powerful episodes from the last year. This episode features a short clip from each conversation so you can easily get a feel for the content and guest. Timestamps and guest names are in the show notes for reference. There's an interesting thing that happens when the word mother is mentioned. A conversation rooted in truth always follows. And for all of us, while she is our beginning, where we land is a journey uniquely our own. If you like what you hear, you can find the full episodes on buyjennifergriffith.com podcasts. Enjoy the listen. Episode 10 is with Jeff Forney, a photographer, music lover, and high fashion model. Jeff was adopted at birth. Raised in the Bay Area by two wonderfully loving parents, he felt the pull to know and uncover the mystery of his origin. Jeff eventually found his biological roots and has been in reunion with his birth mother for almost 30 years. A chance photo shoot with Ray Liotta and discovering he, too, is adopted birthed a project to photograph and interview adoptees in reunion with their biological parents. What was your process for saying, "Okay, I think I want to identify my birth mother?
1: It wasn't something that was on my brain so much. I I think in college, I started coming more into my own, as we do, and... And I started just kind of being more comfortable in my own skin. And then I said, you know, I'd love to know. Let's solve the mystery of my origin. And I just wanted to know. It was curiosity. It was a desire to know where I came from.
0: Episode seven is with Olivia Joffrey, who has an eponymous fashion line that tells a story through her dresses. Her collection of refined leisure wear for women finds inspiration in mid-century Spain via California, and the imprint of both of these places on Olivia's adventurous mother. It's a love letter to your mom. Could you tell us about what inspired you to create this
2: line in her honor? Mm, It's pretty precise. So when I was about 40, my mother developed a very... Advanced and, you know, sort of rapidly advancing case of Alzheimer's. And within a short period of time, I wasn't really able to speak with her anymore. And we had been very, very close because I was an only child and my father died when I was young. And so she was sort of like my sibling and my mother wrapped in one. And that was just really difficult. And I was trying to figure out a creative way to. a a catharsis to be with her still when she wasn't here anymore. And I couldn't speak with her.
0: So it feels like so much of her adventurous spirit was documented in pictures and, and words. How, what is that process for you when you decided to do this at 40, such a bold leap to honor her? What was your process for putting this all together?
2: Grown up with these pictures and I was obsessive about looking at them like I would open up these albums and two hours would pass and I would be like sucked into this old world that she had lived before she was sort of a stay-at-home mom (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I just was able because she told me all the stories sort of behind the pictures so it wasn't too difficult to recall the the actual stories and just bring them to life Mm -hmm. but she was sort of, it was good luck because there was inside that expat writers community in Nerja, there was a professional photographer. So who happened to just take a lot of these gorgeous pictures. And then her best friend in New York during that whole period with the other writers um, in the early fifties, he was um, a photographer for the United Nations. So she was sort of in with these photographers who just happened to document this life. It was by circumstance rather than it was not designed.
0: Episode 9 is with Sarai Obermeyer and her daughter Amy Kelly, mother and daughter celebrating the matriarch of their family's life. Amy Kelly is a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in child adolescent and reunification Therapy, Sarai Obermeyer was a Deputy District Attorney at Solano County District Attorney's Office. Sarai focused on preventing violence and stopping discrimination in order to better humanity. What was it like to have, your mother's name was Vera, what was it like to have her as a mom? Like, what did you take from her experience and her essence?
3: What I took from her was that she really paved her own path. Uh, What I mean by that was that, you know, in the 50s, it was very traditional. You know, the society was telling women as a whole that no career. And, for example, a good girl was a quiet girl. No voice. No voice. No voice. And watching movies, it was really unfortunate You know, women barely spoke and they were there, you know, in subservient positions. And they were just sort of the side to the main character, the protagonist that was inevitably male. And she did not follow that course. And she expected her daughters not to follow that course. Mm -hmm. And we were expected, all three children, to have careers, like I said, and all of us did. And she supported that emotionally and financially. So there was that encouragement. And I remember going to meetings with my mom when I was a child that were like women's rights meetings. And I'd sit there and it would be like, okay. And if there was any male bashing, she's like, we don't do that. And she would go, let's go. So there was an understanding that women should have the right and access to fulfill their potential, but that did not mean that one undermined the rights of men. You would want men and boys also to fulfill their potential. So that message was clear.
0: Episode 11 is with Peter Mutabazi. Peter is an international advocate for vulnerable communities and children. He is the founder and creator of Now I Am Known, a keynote speaker, coordinator for forever family and a senior advocate for world vision he believes every child and young person especially the forgotten neglected or abused deserves to be celebrated seen heard and known peter is a single dad who has fostered 16 kids and adopted two so far when he's not speaking or advocating for others he enjoys running skiing and spending time with his kids and his puppy simba you had this traumatic home but this pillar of strength in your mother and you flee and you're homeless at 10 years old. Tell us how you got out of that because I'm so touched by the kindness of the people who helped you and guided you to boarding school. Can you take us through that journey?
4: Yes, absolutely. So at age of four, I began to realize that not only were poor, you know, we couldn't afford a meal. You know, I grew up in a home where my mom, it's not like she could not tell us to hope, but it's hard when you cannot feed a child for a day to tell them they have a future. So in some way, she really helped us how to live day by day. Uh, at age of four, I also began to realize that my daddy was the most abusive man, so for for me, hope wasn't there in any shape form. But at the age of 10, I could not take. Uh, I could not let my dad take my own life, so I ran away and became a street kid. I'd never been 20 miles away from my village, and I went 500 miles away, and I ended up in Kampala, and I had only one option, and that one option was to be a street kid. So I became a street kid because I had no no other way to survive. But also, it was better to be abused by strangers than be abused by one person who should be my Protector, so for me, you know, yes, the street life was miserable in every shape, but somehow there was safety to eat that my own father wasn't infecting or uh, really uh, abusing me in that sense. So, I became a street kid who lived on the streets by stealing and, and living under the bridges. I had been there for about four years and, and uh, for those four years no one had ever asked me what my name was you know I was always treated though like I was a stray animal like I I didn't like I wasn't a human being in some way but this stranger for the first time he stopped and asked me hey what's your name by him asking me my name for those four years it was really it made me stop and think through like wait I have a name? Wait, someone wants to know my name? And in that way, uh, I got to tell him my name. And before I could steal from, from him food, he gave me something to eat. And he got to know me. And so he fed me for a year and a half. Uh, you know, every time he came to the city, he would always feed me. Of course, people like us who come from a difficult place, it's not easy to trust. So by him providing me one meal once or twice a month, really brought that a little glimpse of trust and hope to a stranger who uh, didn't know where I came from but somehow I was intrigued to know who I was and so finally he offered me an opportunity to go to school and you know and I went it's not like I really wanted to be somebody but for the very first time I had been seen as a human being I had been seen as someone who had a potential the rest of the world saw me I was you know I would never amount to anything I was garbage I was useless, but for him at my lowest, that he saw the potential in me, that he didn't see the dirty thief boy, but he saw a little boy that had a uh, had an opportunity to be someone. And he oh. said, I will offer that. I will be there for, for him. And that's what changed for me. It wasn't the school I was going to, but for the first time, uh, that someone saw me as a human being. Uh, and that's how it changed my life.
0: Amy Ferris' is episode 13, this one-of-a-kind author, screenwriter, editor, and playwright. Her memoir, Marrying George Clooney, Confessions from a Midlife Crisis, debuted theatrically off-Broadway in 2012. Ruth Penbaker of the New York Times called her memoir, poignant, freewheeling, cranky, and funny. Amy co-edited, along with Holly Jexter, the new anthology, Dancing at the Shame Prom tell me about your mother and your relationship with her?
5: I would love to begin there. My relationship with my mother in my entire life, I actually thought my mother was the most powerful woman in the world. And then I realized that no, she was angry. Oh, and that was really profound realization for me. I mistook all of her anger for power. So she scared the shit out of me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She was She was not a nurturer, you know, and one thing I do want to say is that everybody always talks about having a really, you know, like bad relationship with their mothers or dysfunctional. What I realized, Jennifer, at the end of my mother's life is that I had a very honest relationship with her. Mm. She was brutally honest and very unhappy and had, like most mothers of my mother's generation, were not living their life they were living someone else's dream. Yeah. And I I said it in the book and I'll say it here. I realized at the end of my mother's life that I had become the woman she wanted to be. Yeah. That shifted everything for me. It went from being so angry with her and so disappointed and resentful to really understanding that I got to choose a life.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: I got to choose this creative, wonderful, wacky, life and she did not she did not want to be a mother she did not want to be living out on long island she did not you know she she became that woman out of necessity
0: mm-hmm.
5: but who she really wanted to be was this artist and my mother was gorgeous and she was sexy and she was funny but my relationship with her was very Combative. She was also very competitive. Hmm. And I think my dad loved me like crazy. So she, and, and I even say in my book, you know, she had this wonderful confessional moment with me and she said, I wanted everyone to love me and no one to love you. Episode eight is with Melanie Spring
0: as an international keynote speaker, brand storyteller, and public speaking trainer, Melanie took all of her corporate and personal branding experience and created a safe place for kick-ass humans to write the talks they needed to write so they could share it with the world through her course, Speak With Confidence. Take us through how you came to own your story and what this process was like for you.
6: Oh, how many different places could I start? with? (laughs) I know it's a big one. It's a big one. (laughs) It is. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to, I was always struggling to figure out who I was and why I was the way that I was. And I was always going to this thing and that thing and trying to figure out personal development on which part of me needed the most help. And it wasn't until my mom and I quit talking when I was in my early 30s, and just stopped talking for two and a half years. Like there was a misunderstanding, a really horrible misunderstanding about something really simple that could have been a conversation, but it allowed us to take some time away from each other. And in that time I found out that I was judging my mom for judging me. When what really happened was I was thinking, well, she won't like me to cut off my hair. She won't like me to wear these kinds of clothes. She won't like it if I got tattoos. She won't like it if I'm not the person that she wants me to be. I didn't talk to my father
0: for five years. And sometimes that break can give you something like a a distance between whatever that conflict was. How did you, when you reunited with your mom, what did that look like? How did you kind of break down those barriers and those beliefs that she, you know, she wanted you to be a certain way?
6: Well, it started with the fact that every time we would be together, something would get kind of swept out from under the rug. So my family has a really solid way of just, instead of confronting something and apologizing and working through it, it's if we just put it under the rug, it can just stay there. And then later, you know, the wind blows and everything comes out and it's all thrown in your face. And so I had written her a letter, actually, on Mother's Day. She got it and called me and said, in the letter, it said, if you're interested in leaving the past in the past and moving from here forward, then we can have a relationship. And that's what I want. If you can't, I'm not interested in that. And she called and said, I'm in, which is like on mother's day. (laughs) She called and said that. And so it was a, it was an amazing thing to start looking at. I am me. And every time she would say, I mean, I really liked your hair better that way. I wasn't taking it as you hate my hair. I'm taking it as like, yeah, that's nice, but it's mine. And I can do whatever I want with it. So, but it took a big shift for the two of us together to go, I have to accept you as who you are. And we can talk about hard things and it's not going to ruin our relationship forever. And we can sit and cry about it and talk through it and take a minute with it and come back to it, but not let it just get swept under the rug again. Next,
0: Angie Kim, Episode 12. Angie is the debut author of the international bestseller and Edgar winner, Miracle Creek, named a Best Book of the Year by Time, The Washington Post, Kirkus, and The Today Show, among others. A Korean immigrant, former editor of the Harvard Law Review, and one of Variety Magazine's inaugural 10 Storytellers to Watch, Angie has written for Vogue, The New York Times Book Review, The Washington Post, Glamour, and numerous literary journals. Let's talk a little bit about that the myth of the good mother and how we want to shake that up.
1: Yes, definitely. Oh, I'm so glad that you brought that up. That's one of my favorite things. You know, it's so funny because when you write, tell everybody you don't really write, or at least I don't write, thinking of. You know, the theme that you want to hit, you know, you don't go, okay, this is the theme of the book. You sort of think about the characters. You think about the situations that they're in, the conflicts and how they're going to try to get out of them. And then the theme emerges, emerges. And I think the, the myth of the good mother is one of these things that I didn't even realize was a theme in my book. Um, I did think of my book as dealing with parenting sacrifice. I started hearing that more and more in reviews and things like that. And as I thought about it and some of the scenes that the readers were saying were resonating with them, which were about the mothers um, confessing to each other some of the really dark thoughts that sometimes mothers can have when they're, you know, having bad days or whatever. Next,
0: Ashley Mitchell, episode 14. Ashley is the owner of Big Tough Girl and founder and executive director of Lifetime Healing Foundation, set out to seek increased care, understanding, and resources for birth mothers. For over a decade, Ashley has been one of the most consistent and sought-after birth mother voices in the nation, speaking to reform, ethical practice, and national grief and trauma support. So let's get into your story a little bit. So your journey into being a
7: birth mom, tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Yes. So I found myself pregnant. Uh, I'm from Utah, born and raised, um, live here now, still with my husband and our kids, but I found myself pregnant when I was 25. And and because of a Failed abortion plan found myself looking into adoption as an uh, an option for this pregnancy and um I gave birth when i was twenty six and I placed my son for adoption um Derek and he is fifteen and he's an amazing kid uh my husband and I have been married twelve years we have an eleven year old and a nine year old um and so we have this crazy open adaption relationship. My son comes and sleeps over and we have this amazing relationship with siblings and it's powerful and constantly changing, but it didn't start out that way. We started with um, little to no contact, very close in those first five years through so much grief and trauma and self-destructive behavior. Post-relinquishment, That I was not prepared for and it was not educated about and was not something that I was encouraged to discover and understand and educate myself around. And so processing through all of that and coming out on the other side to build this support system for birth mothers nationally has been, it was really at the core of me not having any kind of support. And that no woman should go through something like this, some life check that changes you to the core of who you are. And then expect the women to just be up to their own devices to to fill in the gaps and to heal was just not, a, it just didn't sit well with us. And so we wanted to change that national standard for sure.
0: Next, Shanti Bryan, episode 16. As a litigator, Shanti has extensive experience in the complex areas of habeas corpus litigation, where she developed expertise in constitutional principles as well as the procedural intricacies of the U.S. criminal justice system. She also handled prisoner civil rights litigation and parole cases. As an educator and consultant, Shanti continues to advocate for criminal justice reform and equity.
8: I I am an attorney, and I and was currently a criminal defense attorney at that time, and so it's sort of like the world kind of turned on its head in one moment, and so the question was, how is this happening to me? Why and how? Like, there's a I had a sense, an ignorant sense, I guess, that like this was supposed to happen to other people. So why and how was this happening to me and to us? And at the same time that that was happening, I was representing two young men and I was an appellate attorney and you'll find reading the book that our chances are crap, you know, on appeal, like no chance to win essentially. But for some reason, these two men, I thought their stories involve such injustice um, Nick, one of them, was sentenced to 70 years in prison. He was the driver of the car, and the shooter was his passenger. And the shooter took a deal and was out of prison in 10 years. And and the profound injustice of that was happening at the same time that uh, that Doug's case was happening. And so the, the other question I sought to explore in the book is... How is there not more outrage in the injustices that we are letting happen in our name? Right, a criminal yep. case is called People versus Nick. It's my name that we are sending Nick away to prison for seventy-seven years, like a young kid. Yeah, and so those were the questions that I, I, I was. I was looking to answer when I started writing the book. And that was, you know, 10 years ago. It was a long process. And some answers I found, and, and I guess some I didn't.
0: And last but not least is Beth Brode, episode 17. Beth is an award winning executive producer with over 30 years of experience identifying, developing, and selling content that results in millions of dollars in sales and revenue. She has worked with some of the world's most famous musicians and has an A-list client roster that will make you blink twice.
9: This is so cool. I, I you know, and then I'm looking around and I'm thinking, wait a minute. This isn't just shooting artists. This could be programming.
5: Mm-hmm.
9: Kids are going to they're going to love this. So, I got involved with this director and met some people at the labels and in 1983, I got a call from Warner Brothers Records asking me to go down to Florida to film a video. To Actually, we shot it on film, to film this 26-year-old artist named Prince.
6: So I love like, this story. So I'm like,
9: his name is Prince? Okay, that's it? That's just, just plain Prince. I mean, you know, in, in those years, it was like, I'm like, okay, all right, whatever. So- I fly down there and I'm told by his manager, don't talk to Prince. You don't talk to him unless he talks to you. I'm thinking, okay, that's just really, really weird. and, And I can't do my job. I have to be able to communicate with the artists so that I've got camera people, I've got crew, I've got a stage, I've got all this stuff going on. So I walked up to him and I kind of pulled him aside and I said, in order for me to do my job, I have to be able to talk to you. And so I need you to agree to talk to me so that we can, we can do this together and I can give you what you want. So he looked up at me and he came up to my, my He's boots. tiny.
6: Yes. <laughs> and
0: he,
9: and he looked, he looked at me and he was like, okay. And that was how we were able to proceed And we filmed a couple of videos down in Florida, uh, most notably Little Red Corvette. And I brought all the footage back to Los Angeles and we cut it together. And I brought it to the record company and they just flipped out because it was, you'd never seen an artist like that before. When he came out on the stage And he like slid across the stage. Yeah, right. He's like, I was like, oh my God, this kid is just amazing. This is just incredible. So when I got home and we had cut everything together, everybody wanted to see Prince. Who's this kid? Who's this kid, Prince? And I had the VHS, I had it.
0: Don't forget to listen to my latest episode with Steph Jagger, a seeker, explorer, and writer. Her latest book documents her adventure with her mother into the Rocky Mountains while they navigate the terrain of dementia and the meaning of remembrance. I will be reformatting about your mother in the coming months to bring you a new angle on this type of story sharing. If there is something specific you want to hear, message me on my website or Instagram. Until next time, stay curious and be well. Happy Mother's Day.